As some of you know, I used to crew on a sailboat weekly out of Monterey Harbor out in California. Now, I didn't own the boat. I just helped make it possible for us to be able to sail it on those Wednesday races that we did. And I, I've actually never owned a boat myself, though I understand that the two best days in the life of a boat owner are the day you buy your boat and the day you sell it. And this boat that we sailed came with a big story. It had been a lot of places and, and done a lot of things, but it was bought for a song because it, it wasn't really saleable at that time. But the boat owner worked on it with some others, and, and we brought it up to speed, so to speak. And it was a massive craft. It was a 50-foot-long sailboat, which, if you think about it, is a lot of mass to be floating in that water. I have no idea how much it weighed, but it must have been in, an incredible amount. And so 50 feet long, the, the mast of the boat was 70 feet high. So 70 feet high, depending on the building, that could be a seven-story tall height. And just imagine something that tall flying through across the water. And the amazing thing about that boat, and really any sailboat, is that the only source of power to project the boat forward, it wasn't a man-made source of power, it was the God-given power of wind. It's remarkable to think of the power of wind. It's a substance that is almost weightless. It is invisible. Seemingly, it is soft. You can't see it or touch it and yet the wind has the power to carve canyons. It can knock down towers if they don't bend. It's no wonder that from the earliest writings in Scripture, the power of the Holy Spirit is described as wind. That word ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek, it means breath, it means spirit, it means wind, all one word. And the power of God is like the power of wind. It's not like the power of this world. And there are actually, if you think about it, different kinds of powers that exist. Some powers are powers that have influence over this moment and this space, and other powers are powers that last, powers that endure. And it's not lost on me that here we are located in this city where there is so much power. And there are so many competing powers that work sometimes with each other and sometimes against each other. And here we are physically right next to the center of so much power. And in this city, you might recognize that there is such a thing as the power of force. And there is also the power of what is right. Both are alive and well here. To paraphrase the great William Sloan Coffin, the power of force merely affects behavior, but God's power moves the heart. And on Palm Sunday, we see these two powers coming up against each other. Now this day, it begins um, with a celebration. It begins with what we just did as, as we wave our palm branches and we process and we hear that beloved and beautiful hymn. 
I remember when I was a child growing up at a church in Southern California where we would always begin outside because, of course, it was always sunny. And we had uh, palm branches. We didn't have to order them because palm branches were everywhere. Literally, we had palm trees growing on the campus of our church. And we would gather outside and process all the way around the church and make circles before coming in. Sometimes there was even a donkey. It felt like that was our day. But as a child, when we celebrated in that way, I don't think I realized the full meaning of Palm Sunday. We were able to appreciate the celebration aspect, but that word that we just said, the word that the people said to Jesus, that word, Hosanna, Hosanna does not mean hooray. Hosanna means save us. The people are not accepting and celebrating Jesus as king. Rather, they want something from him. We have to remember that Jerusalem at that time was occupied land. And the people thought that Jesus had come, this descendant of David, to be a warrior to be somebody who would take a sword and face the powers of the world, but with the same sort of power, just more so. And they shouted, Hosanna, save us. And then pretty soon, when he did not, when his power didn't look like the power that they were expecting, they turned on him. There's a centuries-old tradition of acting out the last things that happen in the life of Jesus, the last events, and it's known as the Passion. And you've heard this phrase, perhaps, the Passion Play, where actors would act it all out, and many churches lately have been doing Passion readings on Palm Sunday. We begin with the Hosannas and the Palm Branches, and then we will end today by having this acted out. You'll hear the voices of our parishioners who have read the different parts And we'll be able to reflect on that. And one tradition that uh, many churches have done is for the part of the crowd, that's read by all the people gathered, which is a hard thing to be saying those words, crucify him, crucify him. To read the part of the crowd at that point is a great way to feel guilt. But we're going to try something a little bit different here, something that theologically makes sense, which is that we will read the part of Jesus. And by reading the part of Jesus, that's a great way not to feel the guilt of the crowd, but to feel the power of his grace and his compassion when these things were coming upon him. And he had the power to remain who he was. At our best, his spirit flows through us, and it gives us the power to be like him. And we will take that on today. The version of the Passion that we get this year is the version as Mark tells it. And of all the writers of the gospel, Mark is the one who uses the least words. Um, He is known to just get to the point, to be very blunt. But because he uses so few words, it's worth looking closely at the words he uses because he loads them with meaning. And one example is the moment when Jesus dies on the cross. 
we hear about the veil in the temple being torn in two. Now, the temple in Jerusalem had a veil because they believed that God's presence was behind the veil and it was too powerful for people to be exposed to. And when Jesus dies, the veil is split in two, which means God is unveiled. And then we hear the voice of somebody, the least likely person of all, who proclaims who Jesus really is. It's the centurion. And the centurion says, truly, this man was God's son. There are two things happening. First, the word that he uses, man, you could just as easily translate as human being. It's a statement of theology. This human being was God's son, meaning God and man have come together. The other thing is the person who gets it and who shares this good news of all people is the the enemy. He is the furthest from who should be understanding the true nature of Jesus. He is the epitome of the worst, the centurion, which shows that the winds of God's power have no bounds. They will blow where they will, and all can be included. Like the invisible wind, it is easy to take God's power for granted. But when we have eyes to see, we can behold it and let its power flow through us, which is a power that not even death can conquer. Amen.